Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. If you got a Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. Let me just welcome everybody joining us online. Uh, and I want to say something while everybody's turning to John 17. For those of you who are online and uh, haven't gotten to see you in a while, I just want you to hear from me. I miss you and I love you. And I'm not saying that because uh, I'm trying to get you here next week. Uh, I totally understand why you're uh, presently at home worshiping and have some good reasons to be. And I just wanted you to hear from me today that I love you so much and I can't wait to hug you and see you whenever I get to see you. We miss you and we're still family, even though we may not be in the same room at the same time. I love you so much. This weekend, we're continuing our series entitled The Real Jesus. And no, if, if you're new here, this is not how I sit every weekend. You're like, is this like a semi-Italian restaurant? <laughs> no, you'll understand by the end of the service. You can probably figure it out already. Um, this series on Jesus has been a lot of fun and I was supposed to end it last week and we decided to extend it all the way through Easter weekend where I'll talk about Jesus our high priest. Uh, but this weekend, it, it may challenge some of you. Uh, the title alone is going to weird some of you out. And let's just be real. You know, that's part of my favorite thing to do is just keep you on your heels a little bit. But I don't, I don't entitle messages to be a shock jock. Um, I entitle messages, hopefully by the leading of the Holy Spirit, to uh, begin a journey together in this time. And so this weekend, what we're talking about is of course Jesus, because the series is about Jesus, but it's a side of Jesus that I think is all too often forgotten and or underestimated. The title of this message is Jesus the Lover. Jesus the Lover. Now some of you are already going that's weird. Uh, Jesus is not my lover. Okay, the title isn't Jesus, your lover. The title is Jesus, the lover. And unfortunately, so many of us misunderstand love that when we hear the term lover, we think of erotic love. We, we think of someone, someone has sex with. Love for far too many of us is about lust and and sexual connection, but I would say that erotic love is quite possibly the most shallow version of love. Love is so much bigger and so much better than just merely sexual or physical. And I just wonder how often we look at Jesus as a lover. Think of it this way. My wife and I have lots of nicknames for each other. Some of them are appropriate for you to hear, others are not. Well, one of the appropriate ones for you to hear is lover. We can be at the grocery store in aisle four trying to figure out what to make for family dinner and she'll say, lover. Now, she is not saying, hey, one whom I have sex with. I wish she was. It's Valentine's Day. Can I be real in the house of the Lord? I wish she was. 
I didn't say erotic love was bad. I just said it, it can get better than that. She says lover, and I call her lover. She's not talking about me in the context of the one she has sex with. She's saying, hey, one who loves me, unlike anybody else I know. Hey, one I love more than anyone else I know. That's how lovers talk. We call each other lover. And let me just take the weird off of that if it's still weird to you. Lover means one who loves. It is entirely appropriate to say of Jesus, he is Jesus, the lover. If you're still weirded out by that and you think, Preston, are you advocating an intimate relationship with Jesus? Yes, I am. Yes. One of the most amazing things any father said to a son in scripture was what David said to Solomon at the end of his life. He said, son, get to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Whether you realize it or not, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the God of the universe wants to have an intimate relationship with you. And it has nothing to do with eroticism, but everything to do with affection. This message, uh, th this, is my, this is my thing. I I've never preached this message before, but this is my favorite subject. We're covering my two favorite subjects on the earth, God and his love. If I could talk to you about anything, it would be God and his love. I say time and time again, it doesn't matter to me how long you call this church home. I have one goal for every one of you, that whenever you leave, that you are closer to him than you were when you first arrived. That's what matters most to me. As I was preparing for this message, last week I didn't preach, and so one of my favorite things to do on a week where I'm not preaching is I get to kind of feel like I'm ahead. And so I started studying out a bunch of verses, which is what I do usually on Mondays. And so back in the back here in my office, I have a couple of boards. And, and so I had all these note cards on the board of all the verses I thought we were going to cover. And I came in on Monday morning to really get into the meat of the message. And I'm just standing there talking to the Lord, looking at all the scriptures, just meditating on them. <laughs> and I literally felt the Lord go, nope, nope, nope. Pointed at Romans 8, nope. I mean, I had some really good verses up there. And I felt like he said no to all of them. I said, okay. Well, clearly there's a direction you want to go, and I clearly don't know what direction that is. And I just felt very simply in that moment, he gave me three sweet points to understanding Jesus as the lover. And here's point number one. Jesus was loved. Of course, he still is. But before we can address the fact that Jesus is a lover, we have to have context that he first was loved. It's not that we love him. He loved us first. We have to understand. To understand Jesus as the lover, he was first loved. Now, I'm going to read you Matthew, cha Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and this is a moment in Christ's life after his baptism. And 
many of us know this story and, and there's a voice from heaven and we're going to read it in just a minute that speaks from heaven over the sun. But I want you to think about something. I, I don't know if any of you are parents. I'm, I'm a dad. I've got three kids. They all played youth sports. And I learned something when I would go to their games. About 50% of the time when you would ask another parent, hey, how's everything going? Or how's Johnny doing? Oftentimes, at least 50% of the time, parents inevitably would start bragging about their child. Like if you said, hey, how's it going with Johnny? Oh, you wouldn't believe what Johnny did last week. Okay, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Now it can move over into pride, but isn't that what love does? Love celebrates the accomplishments of the ones it loves. Like That's great. That, this is what daddies do. This is what mommies do. We celebrate the great things our kids do. I want you to think about this. I'm going to read this to you. But out of all of the things the father could have said of the son, he could have bragged. I mean, we point at Matthew 3.17 and, and we, we talk about it, we call it, you know, the, the public affirmation of divine sonship, that Jesus is the son. And it definitely is that. But out of all of the things the father could have said of the son, he could have said, this is the one I've been talking about all these years. He could have said, this is the perfect one. I want to read to you what the father actually said of the son. Matthew three seventeen, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is a verse many of us have heard many times. Part of what concerns me, the more we hear a verse, is if we're not careful, the more we hear a verse, the more desensitized we become to said verse. This is my beloved son. Can I help you understand literally what that means? The father didn't say of the son for the first time on record in the New Testament. This is the one who has a perfect record. This is the one who's won all the games before. This is the one I've been talking about. He didn't say any of that. A voice came from heaven, and this is literally what he was saying. I love my son so much. Parents, think of how incredible this is. When was the last time that someone asked you how Johnny was doing in baseball, and your response was, I love Johnny so much. For those of us who get wrapped up into the whole works predicament, works in order to earn God's love. The father doesn't start off talking about the record of the son. The father starts off by talking about his love for the son. And then he says, in whom I'm well pleased, which literally means I take such pleasure in him, from him. I get joy from him because I love him so much. Now, some of us think that this was the first time the son ever heard the father say these kind of things about him, to him, or for him. This was not the first time the son heard the father talk like this. 
Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 are actually where, where this verse, these words in Matthew 3:17 come from. They're a repeat, something the Father had already said of the Son. Psalm 2, verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Isaiah 42, verse 1, speaking again of the Messiah, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He's my chosen one who pleases me. Matthew 3, 17 was not the first time the Father heard the son heard the father talk about him like this. It also wasn't the last time. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the son hears the exact same words from his father. God says of Jesus over Jesus, this is my beloved son. I love my son so much. Oh, and he brings me such pleasure, such joy. He makes me so happy because I love him so much. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but this is the way my mind works. I kind of want to know. I want to be able to ask Jesus, when did you really start experiencing the love of the Father? Like, when did this first go down? Do you remember the first moment you ever experienced the love of the Father? For how long have you been experiencing this love from the Father, Jesus? I don't know if you know this, there's an answer. If you're in John chapter 17, Jesus gives us the answer to this question. John 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. I don't know if you know this, but that's romantic talk. That's how love talks. Father, I want them who you have given me to be with me wherever I am. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me. Watch this next part. For you, the son says, have loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? That means if you asked the son, for how long have you been experiencing the perfect love of the father? Here's what Jesus would say to you in response. Before anything which is ever was, I was loved by my father. <laughs> what? Before anything which ever, which is right now, ever was, Preston, I was loved before all of that. Here's another way to say it. The first love which ever existed was the father's love for the son. Here's the second point. Not only was Jesus loved, Point number two, Jesus lived loved. Just because you are loved doesn't mean you live loved. We all know God loves us, but do we actually believe it? When you believe something, you act as if it were so. I know we say we believe it, but do we actually, do we live it? Here's another way to say point number two. It's not just that Jesus was loved. Jesus knew he was loved. 
And there are some things we see in his life during his time on the earth when he was fully God, fully man. There's some things we see that help us understand Jesus knew he was loved by the father. And I just want to point a few of them out to you. Here's the first one. Jesus talked about his father's love for him often. One of the ways you know Jesus was loved and he knew he was loved by the father is he talked about the father's love all the time. Let me just show you a few instances. John 3, verse 35. Now this is John the Baptist speaking. But listen to what he says. He says, the father loves his son. How did John the Baptist know this? See, we think that John just showed up one day in in Christ's 30s, early 30s, and voila, they came to know each other. Listen, they met when they were in their mother's wombs. And John, scripture says, leapt in his mother's womb when Jesus got close. I'm pretty sure they were pretty close for the next 30 years. And here's what that means. In John 3, when John the Baptist says, listen, the father loves the son. Why would he say that? I think the reason he would say that is because he heard the son for three decades talk about how much the son was loved by his father. I'll show it to you. John 5, verse 20, Jesus says, for the father loves the son. John 8, 16, I am not alone. The father who sent me is with me. Now, you might read that and think, oh, yeah, it's because it's Jesus. No, this is what love does. Love doesn't leave. Love doesn't want to leave. Jesus says, listen, he never leaves me. He's just that obsessed with me. The father who sent me is with me. John 8, 29. Jesus says, and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me. John 10, 17, Jesus says, the father loves me. John eleven forty one. 41, father, Jesus says to the father, father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. This is how love talks. John 15, verse nine, and we're gonna cover the rest of this verse at the end of the message. Jesus said, as the father has loved me. Time and time again, we see Jesus in the gospels talking about the father's love for him. This is one of the ways you know, not just know, you know the love of the father. You talk about it all the time. Incidentally, one of the ways you know you don't quite understand the love of God is when you talk, sometimes it sounds more like hate than love. I contend that if we all, as followers of Jesus Christ, understood the perfect, unbridled, obsessive love of the Father, we would all talk differently online. That's not how love talks. I'll let that one sit for a sec. Jesus talked about his Father's love all the time. Why? Because he knew he was loved. Here's the second evidence we see in Christ's life. Jesus never tested the love of God's bound, uh, the boundaries of God's love. Jesus never ever tested the boundaries of God's love. There are two ways we can know this. First way, it doesn't exist. Jesus never tested the boundaries of God's love because the boundary doesn't exist. Well, hold on just a minute, Preston. I mean, there's a, a line between God's love and then justice. I mean, 
his love has boundaries because he, he doesn't keep consequences. Listen, I'm going to show you a verse that will help you understand the heart of love and its limits. Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures until. Is that what he says? His faithful love endures as long as. Right, some of you are shaking your heads. But do we actually believe that? Do we live it? His faithful love endures Another way to say it, you can search for the boundary of God's love for all eternity. You'll never find the end of it. There's another way, though, that you can, I believe, know that Jesus never tested the boundary of God's love. He never sinned. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, and I want you to really think through this and, and kind of just wrestle with it. Sit with it a little bit this week. Because it may be a little bit hard to hear and, and you may want to disagree with it at first and that's totally great. Shoe holes in it. Sin always tests the boundaries of love. I know always is a strong statement to make, but I feel like I can prove it and I can actually, feel, I feel like I can prove that you believe it. I believe I can actually prove that you believe that sin always tests the boundaries of love. Think about it. If you're a spouse, when was the last time you ended a day laying in bed next to your spouse by confessing every single sin you committed that day? Not the ones you remember. Every one of the sins God actually saw. Now, this is a lot longer than the ones you remember. The ones I remember. When was the last time laying in bed you ended the day with, hey, can I just tell you something? I got angry today at you and you didn't even know it. Seven times. <laughs> I did this, I did that. I mean, when was the last time you ended a day like that? Probably been a long time. Why? Because you're fully aware of what would happen if every night of your life you ended in bed with your spouse confessing every sin you committed that day. If I did that with Holly, how many days would it take for her to finally be like, why in God's name did I marry this fool? <laughs> like I knew he was bad, but this is way worse than I thought. There's a reason we don't confess all of our sins at the end of every day with the one we love. Because whether we realize it or not, deep down, we know. Sin tests the boundaries of love. See, we look at Jesus and his perfection when he was fully God, fully man on this earth for 33 years, and, and we go, yeah, but he was the son of God. That's why he was perfect. Don't, don't stay in the shallow. Go to touch deeper than that. But what was his why? Now, I'm not going to say I know the answer unequivocally, but I'll submit an answer to you. I think one of the biggest reasons Jesus was perfect in his behavior is because he was perfect in his understanding of his father's love for him. Therefore, he did not need to go looking for something he knew he already had. If you think about it, that's all sin really is. 
Sin is, for ser is searching for something you already have and just aren't fully aware of. You think it's about this. It's not about that. Sin is always about something deeper than this. I think one of the biggest reasons Jesus was perfect in his behavior is because his understanding of the Father's love for him was flawless. It was perfect. Here's the next evidence. Jesus wasn't bothered by the Father's love for others. Jesus wasn't bothered by the Father's love for others. This is a biggie. I think something we see in the church right now is what I would call an orphan spirit. There's a lot of it running around. And, and this is the perfect time to talk about this. If you weren't here last week, go back and watch the message. But last week, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, one of my great friends, spoke. And I know he, at times, might have said a few things that were challenging. Because I've heard this for a really long time, for many, many years. There are some people, when they hear the phrase, chosen people, when they hear the phrase, God loves Israel, something just starts rising up in them and, and they, they just want to respond and go, but I'm chosen too. Or maybe even antagonize Israel to an extent. But listen, the reason people flinch and get sideways about God's love for Israel isn't because they don't understand Israel. It's because they don't understand love. When God says of someone else, I love them so much, and it's not you, it's never at your expense. When God says he loves someone else, it's never at your expense. But if you have some orphan in you, you're going to be like, wait a minute. Don't you love me too? It's like hearing your father say that he loves your sister. One of the ways you know you have a little bit of orphan spirit in you is if you respond by going, well, what about me? When your father says he loves your sister, it's not at your expense. When God says he loves someone other than you, it's never at your expense. In fact, on the contrary, it's always for your benefit. Watching how God loves someone else helps you more completely understand how God loves you. This is the beauty of the divine love story between God and Israel. It was one of the reasons God chose Israel, knowing they would reject him from time to time, run away from him, look down upon him. It's one of the reasons he chose them so that the whole world could get a front row seat to how he loves. Go read Hosea this week. I hear all the time, what is the deal with Hosea? That's the most disgusting book in the Bible. Or is it one of the most beautiful? Because when you read through Hosea and all of the things that go sideways and all of the dirty and disgusting things that go down, and yet the response is still, but I still love you. When God says, I love Israel, it's not at my expense. If I will take my front row seat to watch the divine love story between God and Israel, it causes me to sit back and go, is this how you love? And here's how God responds. <laughs> my man. 
yes, this is how I love. This is how I love you. Preston, you've turned your back on me before. You've tried to replace me. You put other things ahead of me. And I just want you to know, even when my heart is hurt, I still love you. Jesus wasn't bothered by the Father's love for others. Let me show it to you. John 17, if you're there, verse 23. Jesus says to the Father, I am in them and you are in me. That's romantic talk right there. That's intimate fellowship. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. Okay, why do you think there's such a war over unity in the family of God right now? Our unity is one of the ways the whole world will know the Father sent the Son. But it doesn't stop there. There's, some, there's another evidence that the Father sent the Son. May they experience such unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus is letting us all know, I know how my Father feels about you. And I want you to know, not only am I not bothered by my Father's unbridled love for you, I love it. He loves you the same way he loves me. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Here's the next evidence. The last one we'll cover. Jesus let others experience his love. One of the ways we know that Jesus knew he was loved by the Father is he let others experience his love. You know you, are, you have received love and are walking in love when you let others experience your love. If you're in John 17, flip back a couple of, of chapters to John 13. I want to read for you and to you one of what could be described as one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, if not for sure in the New Testament. It's just a weird verse on the surface. But remember what we talked about at the beginning of the series, some of the most beautiful treasures are in some of the most deepest cave, in some of the most deep caves. Let me read this verse to you, John 13, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples. Okay, let's hit the pause button right there. Can we be real? Can we not be fake? Is that a little bit weird? Does anyone think that that's kind of a little bit different? Okay, you're being religious right now. I'll prove it. Let me just speak to the men for a sec. Fellas. See? When was the last time in the middle of church that you felt compelled sitting next to one of your friends, male friends, where you felt compelled I mean, be real. We totally get like a picture of Linus in this moment in John 13, right? Like if, if John was just, he was, he was a sissy. That's just kind of how we think about it. 
Or was he? Was he something totally different? See, we look at that and call it weird, but what if it's not? The verse goes on in verse 23. Speaking of John, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. To get full context here, John is speaking about John. And we make fun of John. <laughs> That's funny. You called yourself the one whom Jesus loved. I don't know if you know this, John has a nickname. John the Beloved. And we kind of make fun of him because we're like, yeah, you called yourself that. Step back for a sec. Remember, this was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What if it's not as funny as we've made it out to be? What if it's a lot more intimate than we could ever understand? John has another nickname, John the Revelator. Why do we call John, John the Revelator? Because he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Revelation. But what if God calls John, John the Revelator for a different reason than we call John, John the Revelator? I wonder if God calls him John the Revelator because John clearly got a revelation of the love of God, quite possibly more than anybody else in the New Testament. Have you noticed how many of the verses I've read are from one particular book? John. Incidentally, fun little scripture fact. John only mentioned the kingdom twice in his gospel. The other gospel writers mentioned it over a hundred times. Yet John mentions or refers to the love the father has for the son, the love between the father and the son over a hundred times. Maybe John got it. And maybe when we read this verse, now there was a disciple who was resting his head on Jesus' bosom. What if that's not as weird as we make it sound? Let me just give you a possibility that it could be bigger than we think. John chapter one, one of the greatest runs in all of scripture on the Messiah, on Jesus. It's absolutely fantastic. Listen to one of the things. Scripture says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. What if Jesus was letting John experience with him what the father has let Jesus experience with him since before the beginning of things? And what if, when John refers to himself as the beloved, what if it's not pride? I get there's a little backstory, but what if it's not pride? Out of all the things the father could have said of the son, he said, this is my beloved son. I think we should all, John is my favorite disciple. I think we should all endeavor to live a little bit more like John. I think he got it in his imperfections. He got it. I am beloved. I am loved by God. Jesus knew he was loved. 
And here's the third point, and this is where you come in. Point number one, Jesus was loved. Point number two, Jesus lived love. Point number three, Jesus loves you. Now, I know, because I've heard it said, one great theologian was once asked, what's the most important and powerful theological truth you've ever learned? And he immediately answered, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Many of us learned that song at a very young age. What concerns me about that is that if we're not careful, we will take something that is sacred, something that is uncommon, and turn it into something that is all too common. We'll turn it into or relegate it to a mere children's song. Jesus loves me isn't just a song. It's the greatest truth that ever was. Jesus loves you. If you're taking notes, I want you to write a couple of one-liners down. Here's the first one. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves him. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves him. Preston, you don't know what I've done. So don't tell me that God loves me like that, that Jesus loves me. Don't, don't tell me Jesus loves me the way the Father loves him. No, because Jesus was perfect. You don't know my trash. Okay, listen. The good news of the gospel is that it doesn't come down to what I have done. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it comes down to what he has done. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves him. I'll show it to you in scripture, John 15, verse 9. Jesus says, I have loved you. Speaking of his disciples right there in front of him. I have loved you even as or just as or in the same way as the Father has loved me. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves him. Here's the next one liner I want you to write down. God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. God, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the universe loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. First John chapter three, here's John again. John the revelator, talking about love. First John three, verse one, John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed, placed upon us that we should be called children of God. Do you know what this means? That one of the Father's favorite ways to show his love for you is to call you the exact same thing he calls Jesus. I get it. 
I mean, I could look at Jesus and be all excited and, and as, as his father, I, I could say some really great things about him. But if I try to put myself in that same camp, it gets a little more complicated for me. It is difficult for my impossible, I will say, for my finite mind to understand infinitely eternal love. That the father would look at me and call me the same thing he calls Jesus. That he would look at you as a follower of Jesus Christ and call you the same thing he calls Jesus. My child. John says, behold. Get a picture. Get a revelation. Grab on to what extravagant manner of love that this is that he would even call us his children. God loves you. The same way he loves Jesus, just as much as he loves Jesus. I want to put up a, a fairly lengthy one-liner. It's not one line, it's about six lines. But it may be one of the most important one-liners I feel like I've ever gotten to this point in my life. And if I had to vote, I would say by the end of my life, this will be in my top 10. And it's a little lengthy. Maybe you take a picture of the TV, maybe you write it down, but I want you to really meditate on this, which is the scriptural word for chew on until you're able to fully digest it. Let me read it to you. Jesus loves the Father more than anyone ever has. Because the Father loves Jesus more than anyone ever will. The Father loves you more than anyone ever will because the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Because Jesus loves the Father more than anyone ever has and the Father loves you more than anyone ever will, Jesus loves you the way the Father loves him. Therefore, you may confidently say and not just sing, Jesus loves obsessively, eternally. I want you to take out the communion elements that you received when we walked in. While you're taking out the bread and don't eat it yet, we're gonna receive the elements together. You may be watching this message online months after it originally aired. Today is Valentine's Day, February the 14th, the quote unquote day of love. And one of the customary things that happens on this day is that two people in love usually go to a nice meal, a nice dinner. Oftentimes it's one of the most extravagant meals of the whole year. It's a celebration of love. And so husbands will take out their wives. Wives will take out their husbands. 
Boyfriend will take out girlfriend. Girlfriend will take out boyfriend. And they'll go and spend a nice chunk of money in part just to send the message. I just want you to know I love you a lot, a lot. Like more than Denny's. Hey, and if you go to Denny's on Valentine's Day, kudos. Just get two Grand Slams instead of one. <laughs> Let thy love for the other be exceeding. That's what we do on Valentine's Day. We take the one we love out to a nice meal. Some of you have been wondering why I'm sitting at this table the whole message. I don't normally do this. It's simply to remind you that this meal you're about to receive is the most expensive meal in all of human history. And every time you take communion, no matter how many other people in the room, I'm convinced the way Jesus sees it is a table for two. That night of Passover, Jesus sitting with his disciples after the meal took the bread, the afikoman, and he broke it. He pointed at it and he said, this is my body. Something I didn't tell you two weeks ago, if you were here and we took communion, I told you the story of what a young man does in Jewish culture and tradition when he wants to marry a young woman. He takes a cup of wine to her, proposes to her. It's called the marriage cup. And if she drinks from the cup, they will be married. And he says to her, if you drink this cup, you will forever be mine. And I will be yours. But I didn't tell you the rest of the story. Because what happens after that in Jewish tradition is that the young man goes back home. And the father of the young woman and the father of the young man get together and establish a price to be paid for the bride. It's called the bride price. Once the price is established, if the young man is serious, no matter how high the price, he pays it. The bridegroom. That night at the table with those he loved, took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Here's another way to say it. The price was established for me to love you forever. That price is my life. And this is my body, which I will gladly allow to be broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, 
remember me. Let's take the bread. One of the perks of this job is I don't have to drink from the same cup that you do. Like Preston, is that wine? I don't know, is it? <laughs> After the bread, Jesus took the cup, the third cup of Passover, the cup after the meal, called the cup of redemption. said this this is my blood 1 Corinthians 11 tells us Jesus said this, this blood of mine enacts the new covenant between God and man between God and those he loves my blood is what guarantees this new covenant This is my blood. Every time you drink from this cup, don't get sidetracked by everything going on in your life. Don't look at all the things that you can count that make you feel awesome. Because what you hold in your hand is a reminder that you can't count my love for you. You know, one of the reasons when I do a marriage, I cry every time I talk about the bride price. Because as a daddy of one little girl, I think it's one of the most ingenious things I've ever heard of. I, I actually want to rip it off and do it with my daughter. I want to set a price so high that every poser will run away. So that one will wake up next to her for the rest of her life every morning and if there's a day where she wonders how lovable she is, she can look in his direction and say, out of all of the men in the history of this world, there was one who was willing to pay. What do you think this is? Jesus wanted you to wake up every morning for the rest of your life knowing how loved you are. And the only way to do it was to pay what no one else was willing to pay. And so he bled when everyone else fled. If you drink from this cup, you'll be mine forever and that will be yours. Jesus said, every time you drink from this cup, remember me. Let's take the cup. Mm, that's good. I should have more of that. You just set the cup aside because we have a few more minutes. 
still haven't told you the rest of the story, the rest of the betrothal process. The young man who's in love with the young woman takes the marriage cup. She drinks from the cup. He goes and pays the bride price. But in Jewish culture, there is an important next step. The young man goes back to his father's house. So he pays the bride price at the young woman's father's home. He goes back to his father's home and he adds on an addition to his father's home where his future wife and he will live. Whether it takes him three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, no matter how long it takes to finish, when he's done, he goes to get her. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14? In my opinion, some of the most romantic words in all the Bible. Jesus said in verse one of John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Stop right there. This means Jesus had already said something about this to them. This was not the first time Jesus had talked to the disciples about going to prepare a place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And there's more than enough room for you in my father's home. Now watch his romantic why in verse three. The bridegroom says to the bride, when everything is ready, I promise, I will come and get you. And then here's his why to come back and get you. So that you will always be with me, Jesus says, wherever I am. He's preparing a place right now for his beloved bride. And he is coming back again. what Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 11, that every time we do this, we announce Christ's death until his return. The bridegroom is coming back when everything's ready. And the reason he's coming back to get you is so that you can be with him. wherever he is, forever. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Silence is one of the most powerful of the spiritual disciplines in my opinion. Simply because silence is quieting oneself to make room for another to speak. I get it. I know you've heard a lot of this since you were a baby. But between you and me, I'm not 100% sure you're completely convinced of it. 
not because you're bad, but simply because his love is just that good. So we're just gonna sit for a few moments. He is in this place. He prepared this table for two, for you. Let's just quiet ourselves for a few moments. Holy Spirit, would you push back the voice of the accuser? Silence it in this moment. God, I pray the only voice that we can hear for these next few moments is yours. stand. I want to invite our altar ministry team to come forward. After I dismiss, if you want to pray with somebody for any reason at all, we'll stay as long as you need us to. If you've never experienced the love of God because you didn't think you were qualified to get in on it, God wills that none should perish apart from his love.
with his heart. What Jesus did in dying for you so that you could forever be with him wherever he is. Because he's so obsessed with you, he never wants to let go of your hand. I pray a blessing over you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for every person here. Lord, I pray that this week, each and every one of them would get a greater revelation, a clearer understanding of your ever-enduring love for them. I pray when they wake up at least one morning this week, they would catch you staring at them, standing over your bed, over their bed. I pray, Lord, at at least one night this week that they fall asleep on their pillow in their bed. They'd hear your voice whispering to them in the way which only love would ever talk. God, would you give them a greater understanding of the fact that everywhere they go, you chase them. You're not just with them. You're their rear guard. Would you give them a revelation that every room they ever walk into, you're already there waiting for their arrival. Oh, that we would all, as all God's people should, understand the height, the depth, the breadth of the Father's love for us. And God, may we so experience it that we would live it so that all the world would have a front row seat to watching how you love and how we love you in response. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.